Amen. You can have a seat. If you are a fourth or a fifth grader, we're going to dismiss you out to the back where Pastor Ben is waiting with candy and more candy. So uh, enjoy your kids' ministry. If you're not a fourth or a fifth grader, uh, we're going to be out of Genesis chapter 11 today. Um, I would love to do a little poll here. Just raise your hand. You know what? Everybody just raise your hand because when I ask people to raise their hands, they don't. So we're going to start with everybody. Put your hand down. If you have not yet heard of this new AI thing called ChatGPT, okay? Okay, well, let me introduce you to ChatGPT. It's the newest kind of like technology thing on the horizon. People are excited about it. It's uh, technically, it's called an AI language bot. Uh, It basically, for the layman, it's a website you go to and you talk to it like a person and it talks back. Uh, It's exceptionally creepy. It's very interesting, uh, but it is revolutionizing the way we communicate with machines. And so chat GPT can generate responses to any question, making it seem like a real conversation with a human being. Essentially, all you do is you type in a question and it'll crank out whatever you need in a way that sounds like a normal person. Uh, So I decided, let's ask it to write a few opening lines to a sermon and see how it goes, right? So I said, chat GPT, uh, I'm preaching a sermon. Could you write me an opening line? And I have options. Would you like to hear them? Option number one. Praise the Lord, saints of God. I believe that God has a powerful message for us today. I'm excited to share it with you. It works. It's not really me. All right, option number two. Friends, I feel the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within me, and I know that God has a mighty work to do in our midst this morning. Maybe I ought to go with that. That's not bad. Um, I think the next one would work when I write me an opening line. It says this, good morning. My name is Pastor Scott and God says to submit to our machine overlords. (laughs) They snuck that one in there. Perhaps it's not quite ready to take over the world. Uh, But what has been interesting to me about the conversation around this new thing, uh, I see it on Twitter, I see it on TikTok, I see all these like, ooh, did you know you could do this with it? Ooh, have you tried? I have a friend of mine who's super into it, and he's like, I'm writing out all these prompts to do all of my work for me, and I'm going to sell them, right? So uh, what's interesting is not just about all the things that this does, all the possibilities it opens up for us, Um, but it's the fact that it allows us to ask this question. I wonder what could we do with it? I wonder what else we could do with it? Because the answers can be inspiring. Oh, I never thought about this. This would solve this problem. Or terrifying. Like, oh, I didn't know that this was just replacing humanity in this kind of way. I mean, what happens if you find yourself listening to, say, a sermon written entirely by an AI bot? right? Or more so, what happens if that sermon actually moves you? Does that cause you an existential crisis? It does for me, but today's story that we're going to read out of Genesis, I think, asks similar questions, not about artificial intelligence, so we're going to move beyond that, but it is a story about technology. It is a story about essentially an ancient building project uh, in the ancient world, but I think it's so much more than just a story about technology, It is a story about what could we do with our abilities, 
with our resources, with our technology, with anything that, that God has given us that we have developed. Um, this is a story about what could we do? What could happen if? And so today I'm going to start by just reading that whole story. It's nine verses, Genesis 11, chapters, or verses 1 through 9. And then I just want to go back to it and just work verse by verse through it and uh, get really, really detailed. So this morning, if you haven't brought your brains with you, you're going to want them. Uh, you're going to want to turn those on as we follow kind of all the way through the story. And by the time we're done, my hope is that this story tells you something about God and something about yourself. And I hope it encourages you to take some interesting new steps in your life uh, that maybe you hadn't really considered well. So, so this is the story. Uh, we're going to put it up on the screen here, Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and, and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not be able to understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because the Lord confu- there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So if you've heard Bible stories as a child, maybe this is a familiar one to you, the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, it's a short story that comes in Genesis before we get to Abraham's massive story. So we close the sort of set of stories that we started with Cain and Abel and Noah and the flood and drunken Noah and then another list of names and then we get to this story. Why is this story here? How does it connect to anything that's before it? What are we supposed to take away from it? I think it makes sense that we tell stories like Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel that we tell them to kids the way we do pretty simple. We sort of treat them like standalone tales, sort of like an Aesop's fables. Like, ah, we can just tell them in order, any order. We'll pick this one over here because that, that'll work, right? But that's not what the Bible is. It's not how the Bible works. This story belongs in a larger context. And I think that this story of a tower reaching to the heavens is directly connected to Cain and Abel and the flood before it because it absolutely is in this conversation about what does it mean to be our brother's keeper? So what are we supposed to take away from it with that in mind? Uh, When we read the story, I think there's a few different perspectives we can start with. Uh, Option number one is we can read this through a lens of just technology. And we can think that this, there's a new technology here, it's bricks. It's the first time bricks kind of showed up in the ancient world. Uh, This invention held tons of opportunity. Up until the brick, you could only build a building so high, and now you've got all kinds of options. There's no limit to it. 
So what do we do with this new technology that frees us from limits? That's a question we can ask. Perhaps the lesson here is that irresponsible use of technology can drive us apart rather than bringing us together. You know, social media today uh, is sort of the kind of obvious modern day tower of Babel, right? We created something new. It can connect us, but instead it's kind of often divided us. There is something here to think about with that idea of how do we use technology and what we've done. But I think that there is a lot more beneath the surface of this story. Another lens we could look through is to say, this is actually a story about becoming just like God. Now, you're likely familiar with the kind of tower that they are building. You might have a picture in your mind, but some say it's actually this ziggurat style of tower building. Uh, It's familiar to us from sort of the Central and South America civilizations. Um, But these towers function as sort of this like stairway to heaven, right? You can see that uh, in that picture. Um, This could imply a certain hubris of the builders, an attitude that says, let's build a temple so high that we would be indistinguishable from God if we climbed it. We will be in charge of our people and we will be our gods on earth. Interestingly, in contrast, when the nation of Israel, who hasn't begun yet in the Genesis story, when they get around to building their temple, there was no stairway to heaven in their temple. They built a dwelling place for God, a home here on earth for God. And so this contrast becomes obvious. Our God comes down and dwells with us. We don't need a stairway to climb to heaven, to challenge him or become like him. And so I also think that's a fine approach uh, to understanding the story. But for me, there's also a question of like, well, so what? What do I do with this? To write down this story at the time of the Babylonian captivity where the Israel's faith, their people, their country has been torn apart, there's got to be a reason they captured this story. That's not just simply the lesson of don't try to be like God or technology is dangerous. Those are helpful, but there has to be something more relevant to their people, something that could be relevant to us today. So that's why we're just going to go a little bit verse by verse. So we're going to start with verse number one, and we're going to work through different parts of the story. Verse number one says, the whole world had one language and a common speech. I have an obvious question if I'm reading through the Bible. If you were here last week, we kind of talked through the last chapter. But what's the deal with this one language thing? The whole earth was filled with one language and a common speech because Genesis 10, this chapter before, told me the exact opposite thing. So either the writer made a mistake between these two chapters or there's something else going on here. I mean, look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a list of Noah's descendants. So chapter 10, verse 5 talks about the descendants of Japheth. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, and each had its own language. Then we get to the sons of Ham. We talked a lot about him last week in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And then finally, his third son, the the, uh, Shem, in, in the next verse, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. So you get it. At the end of chapter 10, you get it. They are spread out in their own territories, and they all have their own language. 
really clear. And then Genesis 11 starts and says, they all have one language, some common speech. They all settled in this place and now, so which is it? What do you want me to know here, Bible writer? Hold on to that question. Hold on to that question because we're going to get, I think if we look through the story a little deeper, the story might help us answer that strange question. In the meantime, let's go to verse number two. The second verse gives us a clue, I think. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So that's where they were, this plain of Shinar, something tangible, an actual physical location. Uh, In the ancient world, the plain of Shinar is the home of the Babylonians. It's where their culture began. Uh, In fact, some versions of the Bible translate Shinar as Babylonia, just to keep you from missing the point. And we know Babylonians are the bad guys. They are the descendants of Ham. We talked a lot about that last week. And we also know that part of writing down the stories in the Torah happened during the Babylonian captivity. So again, God's people are writing down these stories, literally telling themselves a story about people like Babylon. So before we get anywhere else in the story, we know this is a story about Israel's enemies. Babylon, the Babylonians. What we read further in the story has to be understood as these are things the bad guys are doing. Okay? Are you tracking with me? These are things that we can probably learn not to do because the bad guys are doing it. So we have to ask the question of what does Babel tell us about Babylon? All right, one more verse. Let's go to verse number three. So then we get to the meat of the story and they say, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Can I introduce you to some Hebrew ideas for a moment? Uh, Some language ideas. When you read this verse in the original language, the actual Hebrew phrase for let us make bricks uses a verb and a noun together. And both of those words share an identical root. Here's the thing to know about Hebrew language. Hebrew language does not have a lot of words. They don't, also don't have vowels. They have consonants that they put together. And three consonants, two consonants, four consonants put together can be many different words, depending on how you pronounce them. And so it is significant in their culture when two different words or phrases have the same consonant roots to them. Whenever that happens, you can look at each of them and go, this one tells me something about this one. And this one tells me about what this word is supposed to mean. We can connect them to understand each other. So the root and the verb, uh, or the the root of the noun and the verb pairing of let us make bricks is really unique in the Bible. You probably didn't know this. I'm sure you didn't know this. Uh, it actually only shows up one other time in the whole Bible. And it's in Exodus chapter five, verse seven. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. So this story in Exodus is a story of the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt, other bad guys in the story, forcing the Israelite slaves to find their own material to meet the brick quotas. It is a direct connection between Egypt and Babylon. Even more so, it's a direct connection between the idea of brick making, 
and slavery. Because the only time these words get used in the Bible outside of the story is slaves make bricks. Which honestly makes sense. If you're embarking on a construction project in the ancient uh, world, especially at a scale like this, slave labor is perhaps the only way to do it. So already, if you're tracking with your brains, we're starting to see what makes the bad guys the bad guys. Brick is this new technology. It's given the builders new abilities. It's not just a cool idea to make something out of brick. And how they use that technology was a gateway to enslaving other people. Because whenever bricks show up, I guess we're going to build this building project with slaves. And in a way, it's kind of our, our temptation, our danger too. Whenever we use our abilities to control other people, we become more and more like the bad guys every day. In fact, there's, uh, I came across this one quote from a Facebook engineer who says, the best minds of my generation right now are thinking about how to make people click on ads. The intelligence of our world could do so many different things and we're using it to enrich the wealthy. We're using it to get you to click on ads to do what we want you to do. And listen, it may not be technology. It may be your position. It might be your influence. It might be your authority. It might be your ability to convince someone or manipulate someone. The Babylonians, the bad guys, used what they had to control others. How do you use what you have? So let's keep going in verse 4 because the language tells us a little bit more. Uh, Verse four, they said, come, let us build a city, build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. We don't want to be scattered over the whole earth. Okay. So little language city uh, is, is this uh, in Hebrew is ear and then tower. This idea of a tower to the heavens is vashamayim. And there is again, literally only one other reference to this in the Bible that uses that same ear vashamayim. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Tower to the heavens, walls to the sky, a little different in English. In Hebrew, it's the same. Meaning these two things help us understand each other. The story from Deuteronomy 9 is when the Israelites are about to cross into the promised land. And in order to get it, they have to defeat the Canaanites, the other bad guys in the city, Babylon, Egypt, Canaan, always the bad guys in the, in the Bible. Bad guys like fortified cities to the heavens. That's what we learn. Bad guys like to enslave people. This isn't just a story about bricks and towers. This is a story about exploitative kingdoms of Canaan and Egypt and specifically Babylon. And so now when we get to verse six of our story, I I start to hear it a little differently. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. There's some interesting language stuff around the idea of to plan, which is basically almost always meant to get away from justice. It's a negative connotation. But when I read this, knowing the story about the bad guys, I don't think that God is worried about 
the language, the words they're speaking. I don't think God is worried about their technical, their technological abilities. I think what God is most worried about is that Israel might turn out like its enemies. That all of their planning might lead them down the wrong road. They might learn the wrong lessons and they will become like Canaan and they will become like Babylon. That someday they're going to want to build a city fortified to the heavens. That they're going to want a kingdom that enslaves other people and oppresses other people. Because if this is a story about our enemies and it tells us how they oppress other people, then the lesson is don't become a culture that is built upon injustice. And so I wonder our first question about this one language, this common speech. I wonder if the speech that they had in common wasn't words at all. I wonder if it was culture. I wonder if the problem wasn't that, you know, we all only spoke English or Greek or Hebrew or whatever. I wonder if the problem is everyone only spoke the language of empire. Everyone only spoke the culture of oppression. And God says, if that's what they're doing now, imagine if they all keep speaking this language. Imagine after I had restarted the world already with a flood, if I have to do this again, because they're all only speaking the same language of empire and control and oppression. Babel seems wonderful on the surface. A society which everyone can come together and build something amazing. But beneath the surface, it's a dystopia, right? It's Egypt, it's Canaan. It's not a free society where people just come together and build a tower. It is an empire. In fact, this is one of the first empires in the entire world. And I think that's the difference between chapter 10 and 11. That is the language they sort of came to understand together. They started out by filling the land with all their diverse thinking and languages and people and clans. But here they're all in the same place building an empire. Remember what they were most worried about in verse four? Uh, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, what will happen? We'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. I think the leaders of Babel wanted to remain in one place to concentrate their power. The walls of Babel were not meant to keep danger out. They were meant to keep the slaves in. The language that they were speaking was not like this golden age of mutual respect. It's language of empire. And wherever there's empire, there is oppression. So I think that's a a backdrop when we look at the language and verse by verse of what's happening in that story. Let's zoom back out a little bit of why this matters. The first three chapters of Genesis set the whole thing in motion, the beginnings. They describe how God wants to relate to his people. And then in Genesis 12, which we haven't gotten to yet, we begin the narrative of Abraham. And that narrative is so important to God's people because it is the point where God begins to make them a people, a community called Israel. And so beginning in Genesis chapter four and ending in chapter 11, you have this other space of stories. And we begin it with a question out of the story of Cain and Abel, am I my brother's keeper? And all these seemingly disconnected stories about people that we tell to kids are all in there. But I think the reason those stories are in there 
is because they become an important foundation for the community of God that is about to be birthed. These are all stories about how God's people relate to each other, not just to him. Before Israel becomes Israel, they must learn to become their brother's keeper. They must learn to become people who have compassion for their enemies because their God does. And with the Tower of Babel, they must learn not to become like their enemies and build an empire. Because God knows that wherever that happens, there is going to be oppression. And God cares so much about that that he's literally constantly reminding them throughout scriptures. Here's a list of a bunch of scriptures where he talks about it. In Proverbs, he says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. In Isaiah, the prophet says, learn to do good, seek justice and correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And the book of Psalms, which is all these worship songs of expressing our emotions to God and connecting with them. Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord sets the prisoners free. Psalm 43, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then finally, Psalm 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. God cares a lot about the kinds of communities we are building. He is constantly warning against oppression, about becoming like our enemies, about becoming like Babylon or Egypt or Canaan. And he is constantly describing himself as a refuge from those kinds of experiences. God's opinion is so very clear throughout the Bible. Whenever we use our power at someone else's expense, God hates it. Whenever we get what we want at the expense of someone else, God hates it. And so when we read this story, I think we have to read it through a lens of community and a lens of personal. Uh, How do we personally read this? How do we read this together? Because on one hand, we have to deal with selfishness. You have to deal with selfishness that's inside of you. Because you and I, we're prone to build mini empires, aren't we? Left unchecked, we will use what we have to get what we want. Whether that's control or freedom or comfort. And so we ought to become, if we are to be God's people, we ought to become the kind of people who pay attention to the impulses of our heart who recognize that the more we control, the more likely someone else is going to get hurt. We are our brothers and our sisters keepers. And when we use what we have to achieve selfish aims, someone we are supposed to look after is likely to get hurt. So personally, God's people, we have to deal with selfishness. But this isn't just a story about individuals either. This is a story about community, a society, a culture that practices oppression. So part of being our brothers and our sisters keeper is that we also take responsibility for what our culture is doing. And honestly, these days, a lot of times our American Western Christianity can find itself with far more in common with empire than it does with being a blessing to the ends of the earth. So we as a people have to take a look out of what we want out of Christianity. 
Are we interested in empire? Are we interested in conquering others or caring for them? Are we more focused on our community's position and power than going to a different community with loving our neighbor? I think this story exists because God knows his people. God knows that if left to our own devices, we would be likely to build an empire. We would be more likely to build an empire than pour out his grace and his love. And so now we get to the point where we go, what's God's response to this? While we kind of wrestle with this, the story doesn't end because God responds. And I think I'm beginning to understand his response a little more clearly now. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because the Lord confused their language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So how does God deal with a common language of of empire and oppression in that first empire? With punishment? Well, yes, definitely. Babel is a tyrannical society. It's a human failure on a huge gargantuan scale. And God stops that harmful thing. That's just good parenting, right? You want to keep them from hurting each other. But I think what's interesting is God takes the very thing that they set out to avoid and he pushes it on them. They said, we don't want to get like scattered all over the earth. And God says, that's exactly what's going to happen. And he does it just like he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Just like he told Noah after the flood, then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Just like the sons of Noah were doing in the chapter 10 at the end of the boring list of names. Verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations and from these nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So the building project is designed to devalue people, to reduce them to cogs in a machine that you can replace. They're just the same. As long as they build our tower, that's all that matters. But from the very beginning of creation, God desires spreading out, filling the world with the uniqueness of humanity. And so God helps them, despite themselves, recover that blessing of spreading out and diversity is just like he told Noah. He blessed them by removing from them the option to create an empire. So once again, we learn something about God in this story. It's the same thing we learned in the opening chapters of the Bible. It's what we learned in the flood. And it's what we learn right here is that God doesn't quit when we mess it all up is that God never stops giving us a second chance to do it again. And sometimes he has to correct us to get us there. Sometimes, yes, he has to punish us to get us there, to quit hurting ourselves and each other. Sometimes he just has to remove the thing from us so that we don't go in that direction. So we learn something about ourselves in this story that we as people got to deal with selfishness and we as a community got to deal with these ideas of empire and how we use what we have. And we learn something about God in this story, that God doesn't stop pursuing us, giving us second chances. God is not phased when we mess it all up, but he's there to help us start again. 
And so what do we leave with today? After all of that, right? The Tower of Babel is not just a children's story about challenging God or technological achievement. It's a story about how humans can do great evil to each other in pursuit of power. It's a story about what happens when we devalue each other. It's also a story about how God responds to human sin and human failure. So God is building his people. And I think it's so important that we understand this set of stories because those three things are core to the people he is building. That the people of God must reject injustice. They must work against the systems of power in their own culture. And the people of God must embrace the unique grab bag of humanity that we have and value different perspectives of different people and different experiences. And the people of God must always remember that when we fail, we have permission to try again. God's people ask, how can I be my brother's keeper? Did you ever um, walk along the beach and see like a bunch of kids playing in the sand and maybe they're digging a hole or uh, if they're boys, they're digging a hole, most likely, I don't know why. Um, but, or they're building a sand castle, right? And if you watch kids in the midst of this environment, there's usually two kinds of kids. There's the builders and there's the breakers, right? Because some kids and adults take great pleasure in building elaborate enchanting castles with moats and bridges and bringing in leaves and dead fish and whatever you can find, right? Other kids and adults take great pleasure in jumping on top of them, right? Smashing them to the ground, just destroying what's in there. I think there are two kinds of followers of God. Those who are willing to look out for the good of their brothers and their sisters and others, even if it means limiting their freedom or their choices or their comfort. Those are the breakers. The people who would rather... Uh, go on insisting that they do what they want to do, no matter how much damage it might do to others. And then there's the builders, the people who say, I've learned the stories of God's people, and I've learned how important it is that I as a person and we as a people become our brother's keepers. God considers this really serious business, do we? And honestly, I kind of struggled with this sermon as I was writing it. Um, Because for me, all of this stuff is really interesting. There's a lot more like Hebrew language I could throw out there. It's really fascinating to me. But how do I, the question I was struggling with is how do I help it matter to you? How do I help this like become a part of our life and not just an interesting perspective? And the best I could come up with today is that maybe today, is just about confessing what's broken and asking for new eyes. Maybe today is just about naming, oh man, God, I think I might've screwed this up again. And asking God, can you help me see differently? Can you help me see each other? Can you help us see who we don't see right now? Maybe today is just about confessing the brokenness of our culture, of our community, of ourselves, and asking for a new set of eyes. And so it's, it's helpful that we come to the table today uh, to practice the Lord's Supper because when we practice the Lord's Supper, we do offer that brokenness. 
both as individuals and as a community, knowing that through the sacrifice of his own son, God has made a way for us to start over again. And so we come to the table to lay down our control, to recognize he is God and we are not. And so we're going to do that today. We have four stations around the room. Um, I believe that one is the gluten-free one in the back, if you want to go to that one. Um, And when you come to the table, all you're going to do is take a piece of bread that's been kind of cut up for you and dip it in the juice. As we remember the sacrifice God makes so that we can come to him, that we can start over. You can go to any station you want. There is no hurry. There's a lot of you. We'll step over each other. It's fine. We're all in this together. Um, And when you come back to your seat, uh, just uh, we'll close the service uh, in, in more singing. And so whenever we do this, uh, we ask people to say, if you have chosen to take a step towards God, a step to say, I might have broken this God and I want new eyes, then you can come to the table. If that's not you for some reason today, if you're not ready to do that, that's okay. Um, Stay in your seat and consider what God might have to say to you. But if you can take a step towards Christ and say, I'm broken I've broken things and God, I need restoration and so does our people and I can lay down my control. If that's you today, then this is for you. So let me remind you of what the apostle Paul says. He says, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks to God, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You proclaim the very thing that puts us back together again and again and again. Let's pray together. Lord God, we bless you today. We recognize that we do not belong in a tower in the heavens. God, that we belong as your people. And I confess, God, that there are people that I don't see because I look at myself more. God, I confess that there are people that we as a faith community, as a church that we don't see because we might be more interested in building our own version of empire than we are at being our brother's keeper. And so God, would you A, forgive us? Would you first of all, uh, take this confession on behalf of your people and forgive us? And even more, God, as we come to this table, would you put into our hearts and into our eyes, into our ears, into our minds, the steps you would have us take towards each other? Would you help us become your people? in the way that you would have created us from the beginning. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As you feel ready to come to the table, the table is ready for you.